open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. It's always a blessing to open God's Word on Sunday mornings, and I'm always anxious to preach on Sundays. Sometimes I'm not as not quite as anxious as we start the week out. On Monday mornings, I'm, it kind of takes me a while to get going, but as we go through the week, the anticipation keeps growing, and it's always a pleasure to step into the pulpit on Sunday morning again. I'm a little bit under the weather today, uh, so you'll bear with me a little bit. I'll try to keep my thoughts together, and hopefully we'll get through all of this together. But we have an important um, uh, part of Scripture in front of us today. And one of the things that I like about our study in the Gospel of Matthew is the anticipation of the next great event that we'll see in Jesus' life. And we finish one great section, and then we're ready to move on into the next. We're ready to delve into uh, something else that God would have us to know, and I, I always like to do this. And uh, today's passage is one of those that is confusing to many people. If you do much Bible reading, you're going to run across these types of passages from time to time, and they sort of leave you scratching your head wondering, what was that all about? And one of the joys of studying the Bible is finding out what it's all about, and one of the joys of pastoring a church and teaching you is that I get to help you to find out what it's all about. So before we even begin today, I want to give you a hint of what Jesus is speaking of in this scripture. The passage is about the exclusivity of the gospel. In the entire world, there's nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. It stands alone. It's pure. It cannot be mixed with anything. It can't be put into any other religious system And if I could put it to you this way, salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we want to look at the unique way in which Jesus gets this point across. If you'll look at Matthew chapter 9, and stand with me as we read God's Word today. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 14, and we'll read to verse number 17. Matthew 9, verse number 14. Then came to him the disciples of John saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth into an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we just pray that you'd speak to us today. Open up what you'd have us to know today from this word. We'll give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for us to back this story up just a little bit in order for us to uh, get our bearings so that we can understand the scene. This chapter begins with a great statement of truth that we find in verse number 6. Jesus said, The Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And that statement was tantamount to a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we know that there are many groups today that deny this. There are Jehovah Witnesses and there are Mormons that falsely claim that Jesus never made any statements concerning deity. And they say that Jesus never claimed to be equal with God the Father. They say that he is not the God, Jehovah God of the Old Testament. But verse number 6 shows us that Jesus claimed clearly that he was God and the Jews understood it as such. In the parallel account of Mark chapter 2, the scribes heard Jesus say this, and they replied, who can forgive sins but God only? So they knew what Jesus meant when he made this claim, that Jesus was telling them that he is the one true God, and that he has the ability to make a demonstration of being able to forgive sins. And Jesus did that when he healed the paralyzed man, The Jews believed that that type of sickness was one that resulted from sin. And there was only one way that this man would ever be healed from his sin. He would ever be able to get up and walk. And that is for God to forgive his sins. So Jesus said to the man, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And then he healed him and he told him to pick up his bed and to walk home. In the next section, Matthew uses himself as an example of how deeply that a person can go into sin and yet still have his sins forgiven. Jesus will forgive the worst of sinners. And without going back into that whole story about Matthew, uh, Matthew believed, as well as everyone else, that he was the worst of the worst. And so if he could be forgiven of his sins, then that meant that anybody could be forgiven of sin. And then we go on in verse number 13, and we find a full frontal assault against the self-righteous system of the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't think that they were sinners. They were above people like Matthew. And so they assumed that if Jesus was so holy and good, then why would he spend time with the dregs of society like Matthew? And so Jesus essentially says here, if you think that you're holy, if you think that that you're okay the way that you are, then I'll go with that self-assessment. I don't agree with you, but I'm not going to deal with you because I am going to people that need to have their sins forgiven. I'm going to people that need to repent. And he says, I didn't come to call righteous people to repentance, but sinners. And so this is the background then as we go move on into verse number 14. This part ties in with the other because there is this ongoing problem throughout Jesus' ministry that he is working outside of the parameters of the Jews' self-righteous system. And they were trying to figure out how could they get Jesus to fit in with them. And the plain, simple truth of the matter is the gospel does not fit with anything. The gospel stands alone. Now, let's see how this develops and how that Jesus will illustrate this truth. First of all, we'll look at the awkward alliance. The awkward alliance. In verse 14, there is a group of people that really should not fit in with this self-righteous system of the scribes and Pharisees. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Now, these are disciples of John the Baptist. And curiously, on this issue of fasting, they had aligned themselves with the Pharisees. And these are two groups that really shouldn't have had anything to do with each other. But here we find them both together. They are aligned against Jesus, and they're accusing him of abusing their doctrine of fasting. 
Now, you remember that John the Baptist gave a, a, a seething denouncement of the Pharisees. When they came to him to be baptized, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, John knew their hearts. He knew that they were impenitent, that there was no change in them at all. And so he refused to baptize them until they had come to him with some kind of proof that they had actually repented of their sins and they did have a change of heart. And so now, to find John's disciples aligned with these very same Pharisees is very strange indeed. But it appears that after John the Baptist had been put into prison, that some of his disciples became a distinct group. John intended that when he declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he intended that after he made that statement that his own ministry would begin to decrease. Remember he said, he must increase and I must decrease. And so John fully expected that his disciples would begin to follow Jesus. That was John's purpose. God had called him to be the one who announced the Messiah. And when he did then all of those people that he baptized should have begun to follow Jesus. But some of them didn't. Even as late as the ministry of the Apostle Paul, we find that there were some of them that didn't follow Christ. And so Paul had to show them the right way. He had to show them righteousness by faith, and then he rebaptized them into disciples of Jesus. You'll find that story in Acts chapter 19. There are two problems, two problems that are evident here with these people. First one is, they failed to move to faith. These disciples of John the Baptist had failed to move to faith. They, they had grown up under this self-righteous system of the Pharisees. And when Jesus came on the scene, there were just an extremely small number of people that really did truly understand Old Testament doctrine. There were very few people in Israel at that time that understood the principle of Abraham's faith. And how that the Old Testament taught that people are justified by faith. But instead, this pharisaical system had permeated the Jewish society. They and some other texts had taken over the Jews' religion. And so they ran the synagogues. They were the people that were the scribes. They and another sorry group called the Sadducees, they, they ran the temple in Jerusalem. And so from top to bottom, from top to bottom, Finding a true believer with faith in God, faith in the true Jehovah God, was as scarce as hen's teeth. And so everyone was locked down into this system. And it wasn't a system of righteousness by faith, but one of righteousness by the keeping of commandments. And so either you were with these people or you were a heathen. Either you were with them or you were a scummy sinner. They were righteous, they thought, they said, we're on God's side and everybody else is a condemned child of the devil. And so some of John's disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand what John taught. They failed to understand righteousness by faith, and so they did the natural thing. They aligned themselves with these Pharisees and only very slightly modified what they believed. And so what did they do? Well, in following the Pharisees, they also latched on to legalism. And they never gave up the belief that righteousness is based upon the works of the law. And so they kept striving in that hopeless system. But that can't work because the Word of God says that we are never going to be good enough for God because God demands perfection. And do you remember how we learned that in the Sermon on the Mount? 
There in the sixth chapter, Jesus addressed three main hypocrisies, three things that were terribly wrong with the scribes and the Pharisees. He said that they were hypocritical about their giving. They were hypocritical about praying. And you remember this, that they were also hypocritical about fasting. And those were the three big things in their religious system. Those were the three main things that they used as demonstrations of righteousness. And so when they gave, they would come to the temple and they would throw their gold coins into the treasury box and they would make sure that everybody heard those coins rattling in the box. And they would blow a trumpet before them to let people know that they were giving to God. And then when they prayed, they were wrong about that. They were hypocritical about it because they would go into the synagogues and they would stand there or they would stand out on busy street corners and with their long oratories, their eloquent oratories, they would make a show of it. They would let people look at them and wonder what great men they really were. And they were hypocrites because they wanted to be recognized by men. And then remember, too, again, that they fasted. And boy, did they ever fast. This was one of the most important things in their system. Twice per week, they fasted. And they made sure that everybody knew it. They would put ash on their faces. They looked like death warmed over. And so everybody would know what a great sacrifice that they had made. They had sacrificed themselves for God because they were fasting for him. And this is why that you find John's disciples asking this question to Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but you and your disciples don't fast? You see, it was all a part of that hypocritical system. Now, I don't want to turn this into a lesson on on fasting today. We studied that some time ago. But the truth is, you can comb the Scriptures from one end to the other, and you will not find a command for anyone to fast today. The only fast that was ever commanded in all the Bible was the one that was commanded in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. Israel was commanded to fast on that day, and that was only one time per year. But what they had done by the time of Jesus is that they had turned fasting into a badge of righteousness. And they did it to be holy. It wasn't in response to a heartfelt contrition for sin and sorrow over sin. That's why it was commanded on the Day of Atonement. They fasted on that day because of the sorrow that they had for their sins. They needed to be right with God. And so they sorrowed over that and they fasted because of national sin. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't that one-time occurrence any longer. Now it had come to be twice a week. And so over 100 times a year, they fasted because in that legalistic system, that was the way that you became right with God. You make a show of things. You, You prove to people that you're holy. You do something, and then you'll be right with God. But that kind of righteousness is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will not accept that in any form. It does not fit. And in just a moment, we'll see how Jesus illustrated that it wouldn't fit. Now, secondly, Jesus told them or showed them the appropriate actions. There is an appropriate time for this. Why don't you fast like us, they asked. And Jesus' response to the question, to the fasting, was to put it into the proper context. There is a time to fast, and there is a time to feast. And you don't want to get those two times confused. And so he says in verse 15, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. So there are appropriate actions to be taken at the right time. There is a time to fast, and there is a time to feast. And when you get this right, it's an indication that you really do know what the ministry of Jesus Christ is all about. Now, if you look at what he is doing, look where he's going and what he's doing instead of where you're going and what you're doing, then you'll have this right. So how did he sort it all out? Well, he says, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And so he compares his ministry upon the earth as a time of celebration. So he begins with this. He's showing them, first of all, this is a time to celebrate the Christ. Christ means Messiah. The Messiah is here. He's in the world. It's a time to celebrate because there's a wonderful ministry that's taking place. And the comparison that he makes here is to a wedding celebration. I spent five weeks last month in our Revelation study uh, telling you about this, dealing with the subject that the bridegroom, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return to this earth and he's going to take his bride home to be with him. He's taking the church out of this world. Whenever Jesus is present, that is a time for us to celebrate. In those days, a wedding feast would take at least seven days to celebrate. And during that time, it was the job of the friends of the bridegroom to keep the party going. They kept the party going, made sure that all the guests were having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. And this is the answer that Jesus gives these people when they come to ask. He says, this is what my disciples are doing. They're not fasting right now because it's not the time to fast. It's not the time to mourn. It's a time to celebrate. And why? Because sick people are being healed. Devils are being cast out. People are getting right with God. And the kingdom of God is coming to you. And so what Jesus did was to put fasting into the proper context. Fasting is a time for mourning. Fasting involves sorrow, real sorrow. Fasting is not a show of holiness. It's not to make you righteous. It's a time to mourn and to be sorrowful. And you can't be sorrowful when the bridegroom is here. That's the time to celebrate Christ. But then he goes on and he says, The days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. So now he's telling them the Savior will be smitten. There is an appropriate time to fast, and this is when the Savior goes to the cross to be crucified, and there he will spend three days in the tomb, and that will be a time of fasting. His disciples would be sorrowful uh, at that time. Fasting is something that would come natural then. They wouldn't follow a command. They didn't need somebody to tell them, go proclaim a fast, stop eating, be sorrowful, be mournful. They didn't need that. Because it would come to them naturally because they would be in such deep sorrow. And that is what happened. Jesus went to the cross and the disciples, not yet understanding what the cross was all about, were in deep sorrow. They thought that all of their hope had been lost. The one they thought that would deliver them and who was their God had been put on a Roman cross. And there he died like the worst of criminals. And so he was dead put into a tomb, a stone was rolled up to the mouth of it, and then there was a guard set there to prevent anyone from coming and tampering with the body. And so for three days, they languished about that. They sorrowed about that. And they said, we hoped, we hoped that this would have been the one that redeemed Israel. 
Now, if you just turn a few pages over to Luke 24, this is the story of the resurrection when Jesus came out of the tomb and he appeared to two disciples that were walking along the road to Emmaus. This is in the 13th verse of chapter 24, Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these which ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a mighty, was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have delivered or redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now there you catch some of the despair. Three days had passed, did nothing. Three days, and they were sorrowful because all their hopes in Jesus had been dashed. And Jesus said they will sorrow. The time is appropriate for fasting. They will fast and they will mourn because the bridegroom is taken from them. But everything changed. They went from feasting to fasting and then back to feasting. And we'll notice, thirdly, rejoice in the resurrection. Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Rejoice, the feast is back because the Savior is alive. He's out of the grave, so hope is restored. It's realized. And because Jesus came out of the tomb and he lives, our salvation is guaranteed. And if we have faith in him, we will live also. And so what do we do? We let the celebration begin. Now that begs an important question for us today. Should we be feasting or fasting? Well, there are times that we're sad and fasting does come naturally. You don't need to let a preacher tell you when to fast. The church needs not to proclaim a fast because that's not biblical. Fasting comes when you're sad. It comes naturally and it's appropriate. I think it was just today. It's, it's funny how these things work out. Or last night, I believe it was, I was reading something and, and I, I no, got a note from another pastor and it was talking about how that his church had proclaimed a fast. And they listed all the things that the people were to do during this fast that was going to last, I think, for about a month. And top of the list was, for this week, you need to fast from dessert. And the next week was you need to fast from... I believe it was uh, some other peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or something like that. And then the next week, you were supposed to fast from media. That means you weren't going to watch TV for a while or listen to the radio. That's not biblical. That's not what a fast is about. Fasting is about sorrow. You don't proclaim a fast, and you don't let people know that you're fasting, not according to the Word of God. But we do know this. There are times that are appropriate to fast when we are sad. It does come naturally. But I'll also say this, that it's not the normal everyday activity of a Christian. We're not to be sorrowful, somber people. 
And there are some folks that come to church with a scowl on their face. They look like they drank pickle juice for for breakfast that morning. That's not the way that we come to church. We are to come to church with joy in our hearts. We celebrate because Christ lives. We're here on Sunday morning. We meet on Sunday morning in the church because of the fact that Christ lives. And so we come and we sing the songs with joy in our hearts. We pray the prayers and the anticipation that God will answer them. We listen to the sermons and we're happy about them. Even the times when they stomp all over our toes. Be happy about the sermons because these are things that will cause you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And how could you not be happy when you're like Christ? It's not a time to fast right now. It's a time to feast. When people are being one for the kingdom of God and we're serving God Almighty in his kingdom, that is a time to feast. So there is an appropriate time to fast, and those times happen to be few and far between. There are far more appropriate times to feast, and that's because we know Christ. It's because we have salvation. It's because we live in the anticipation of his return. And should Jesus delay his tearing so that he doesn't come in our lifetimes. All of us know this as believers in Jesus Christ. The next great event that is going to happen to us is that we will see Jesus face to face. When you think like that, why would you fast? It's a time to feast. I'm not telling you stand up and do backflips off the chairs or anything like that, but put a smile on your face. Every once in a while, say amen to things. Show people that you're happy. So Jesus straightens them out on this, on these false notions about fasting. You're wrong to do it hypocritically. They were wrong to do it for their salvation. They were wrong because they did not recognize the value of his ministry. And what he was doing was giving them a glimpse of kingdom living. What is it going to be like when the kingdom is here? And we've talked about that, haven't we? The healings and all that, that there's no sickness in his kingdom. He controls the weather. He brings rain on the crops. The earth gives forth abundantly. There is no death there. There are no demons there to bother us. So he wants them to be happy because he's giving them a glimpse of what that coming kingdom will be like. But they weren't fit for that kingdom. They were stuck fasting when they should have been feasting. Now let's look at the illustration that Jesus gives because he shows them thirdly, additives are not Allowed. Additives are not allowed. Now notice in verses 16 and 17. No man putteth a piece of a new cloth into an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now, this is where we kind of get thrown off. What what does this mean? What's the mystery of all this, of putting new cloth on old garments? And what about this stuff of putting new wine into old bottles? What does that have to do with anything? Well, let's look at the simple part of it first. Most of us really don't do too much mending of clothes today. Clothes are relatively cheap, and so when you get a hole in a pair of jeans or a tear in a dress, you throw it away, and you go buy another one. I remember when I was growing up, uh, we didn't get new clothes like that all the time. And so when I had a pair of jeans, my mom would sew a patch on the jeans. She'd take a, a piece of cloth and she'd sew it over the hole. And she did that for a lot of years until they came out with the, uh, with the iron-on patches. 
And so when I got a hold of my knees and my jeans, then she just ironed the patch on and she would go on. Now today, of course, you go to the store and they've already pre-holed the jeans for you. I mean, they're already torn up when you buy them. And that's supposed to be chic. That's what people wear. I was in the hospital just this, this week, and I was coming down the hall, and a woman was walking towards me, and she had on both thighs holes in her jeans this big, almost all the way down from the belt all the way down to her knees, big holes in her jeans. And that's the way people walk around. That's supposed to be fashionable. Well, in Bible times, clothes weren't disposable as they are today. And so they had to make their own clothes. People didn't just throw them away. So what they would do, if it got a hole in it, they would patch them. And they didn't have the synthetic fibers like we have today. So their clothes were made out of wool. What happens when you take a wool garment and you wash it, and you wash it, and you wash it, and you keep washing it? Well, that wool garment shrinks until finally it comes to the place that it doesn't shrink any longer. So if you were to take a new patch of wool, a new patch that you're going to sew on top of that old wool, what would happen the first time that you washed it? Well, the new patch would shrink, and when it did, it would tear the, the, the material, on the old material that's already been washed many times. That's what Jesus is talking about. You don't put that new patch on the old garment, because as soon as you wash it, it's going to tear it worse than it was before. Then the second illustration that he gives is of putting wine in bottles. And, and the bottles that he's talking about here are not glass bottles like we have today, but he's talking about a wine skin. What they would do is they would take an animal and they would gut it, and they would tan its hide, strip the hide off, tan it, and then they would flip it inside out, tie up the legs, and then they would use the neck as a spout, and they would pour the, the wine into that wine skin. Well, after you use it so many times, the wine skin starts to become hard and brittle. It's, it, it's really hard. And so what you wouldn't want to do is you wouldn't want to take some new wine and pour it into that old wine skin. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, because you pour some grape juice in there and it starts to ferment and it gives off carbon dioxide gas. And when it does, it starts to expand. And when it expands, it just explodes that old wine skin. Now, that's the point that Jesus is trying to get across. And you really have to kind of put yourself in, in their place. They had a really strange sense of humor because these kinds of things were funny to them. Everybody knew that you didn't do this. So Jesus is kind of saying it like this. You know, fellas, trying, trying to mix your faith or trying to mix your works in with the faith that I'm trying to teach you, that's like some nut going out and pouring new wine into an old wineskin. And they knew that was crazy for anybody to do that. That was a graphic illustration to them. It was side-splittingly funny that anybody would do something so stupid. Only it wasn't so funny because the joke was on them. So what's the meaning of it? Well, it's really the whole point of this section of Scripture. First of all, the gospel replaces all religions. Now, they came wondering that if they're going to follow Jesus, how can they fit everything that they do into his system? How is that going to work? Jesus, if we are going to become your disciples and we're going to follow you, then how can we relate to your teaching? And Jesus' answer was, you can't. You can't mix any of what you're doing. You can't mix that old pharisaical system in with mine. From top to the bottom, you're wrong. And he says, you can't mix works with grace and hope that you're going to get to heaven. 
And that's exactly what Paul faced with the Galatians. In fact, the whole book of Galatians deals with this problem. How do you get grace and works together? So Paul faced the problem. There were Jews that were still hanging on to that old legalistic system, and they'd come in and they were confusing the new Galatian Christians, and they were trying to put grace on top of law. They were trying to even replace law with grace, and that's wrong. Jesus did not try to do away with the law. Grace and law can coexist peacefully with one another if you understand them both. What you can't do is that you can't mix the law in with grace in order to be justified from your sins. This is why Paul says to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, receive ye the spirit of the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh. And the whole Sermon on the Mount was about the very same subject. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme of his sermon. The righteousness of the Pharisees is not good enough. And so Jesus is telling the disciples of John that everything that they were doing and what the Pharisees were doing is incompatible with his teaching. He taught the truth of the Old Testament and all those misinterpretations they had of it would not cut it. There's no mixing anything in with what he taught. And so all of that confusion had to be abandoned. So the system was so wrong that trying to put Christianity into it would explode it. And the only way they could hold all of this together was to get rid of Christ. And it turns out that's exactly what they did. They couldn't put it together. It was explosive. It was the wrong kind of a mixture. And so they never could do it. Well, how does that relate to today's world? Well, I think a simple example of it would be what we find in Roman Catholicism today. Roman Catholicism began 1,500 years ago trying to mix paganism with Christian doctrine. And that's why you find idols everywhere in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Pharisees weren't idol worshipers, at least in the sense of making a physical idol, but they were very big on rituals. Their whole religion was based upon rituals. They didn't have anything in their heart at all. They didn't have anything there but a cold, dead formalism. But it was all about the rituals. And you find the same thing is true in Roman Catholicism today. It's all about the rituals. And so they tell you to do the rosary, count the rosary beads, say the Hail Marys and the Our, Our Fathers. They kneel and they stand and they kneel and they stand and they consecrate holy water and they go through this ritual and that ritual. But if you ever sit down with a Roman Catholic and say to him, have you ever been born again? Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ to save you? Have you stopped trying to do things yourself in order to get to heaven? And he won't understand anything that you're saying. Do you know why? Because he's been taught by the priest that there are certain requirements for penance. And when you sin, there are certain things that you have to do to get back on God's good side. And so he gives them the penance, and they go and they do that, and they think that they're holy again. And it's not really any different from what the Pharisees were doing when they tried to be right with God. And Jesus says, that's not going to cut it. It's not good enough. Because you have to be perfect. 
And so what he's saying is, you have to give up your old religion. You've got to get rid of that. Get rid of it because the gospel cannot mix with it. The gospel is the free grace of God. It is salvation by grace through faith alone. And it's Christ's righteousness that gets you to heaven, and you receive it from him by faith alone. You see, that's why Martin Luther was so enamored with the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians was the death knell to Roman Catholic doctrine, and so he wrote the gold standard commentary on the book of Galatians. Now, secondly, mixture destroys true doctrine. If you try to add anything to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, then the purity of it is gone. J.C. Ryle, who was a great theologian in the 19th century, wrote, Some tried to make the gospel more acceptable by mingling it with Platonic philosophy. Some labored to recommend it to the heathen, borrowing forms, processions, vestments from the temples of heathen gods. In short, they sewed the new patch on an old garment, and in so doing, they scattered seeds of enormous evil. You see, you can never mix the gospel with anything and still retain the truth. In some countries, like India, Christian missionaries are very successful at getting hundreds and even thousands of converts, and they can do it because those people aren't really converts. They tack Jesus on to a list of hundreds of gods that they already worship. And so what they've done is they put a new piece on an old garment. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is too exclusive for that. It stands alone because Jesus alone saves. And so if you ask the question, do Muslims go to heaven? Do Buddhists go to heaven? Do Mormons go to heaven? Do Roman Catholics go to heaven? Well, not unless they become no longer Muslims and no longer Buddhists and no longer Mormons and no longer Roman Catholics and not unless they give up trying to be righteous by things that they do and unless they come by Jesus Christ alone, they have no hope of eternal life. And on that same basis, you might ask me, do Baptists go to heaven? Not if they have faith in the name and not if they have faith in the fact they go to church, and not if they have faith in the fact that they walked an aisle or they were baptized, because none of that saves anybody. You can never mix religious activities with faith, because when you do, you no longer have the gospel. You see what salvation is? Salvation is not the reformation of your old way of doing things. Salvation is transformation of your life through Jesus Christ. It's being born again. It's becoming a new person in Christ. It's not remodeling the old life that you have. Christianity is a new life. You just can't put a new face on what you've been doing. Now, now take that and recycle it back into verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus does not want you to bring your old, broken-down religion to him. He doesn't want anything that you have to offer, because none of that counts. Now, these people decided that fasting is what made them holy, and all it was was an external expression of a same old wicked heart. So Jesus doesn't want what you have to offer. He's only interested in what he can do for you. He doesn't care about what you do for him. He's interested in what he can do for you. 
And you're never going to be good enough. You'll never be good enough to approach him because Jesus has no interest in all of those things that you do. And we learned that last time. And this is just an illustration of the very same message that Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. And so new patches tear old garments, new wine burst old wineskins. And what Jesus came to do was to radically change everything about you. The gospel transforms you, not reforms you. The gospel stands alone. And it's by the gospel that you are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we found in your word today. I ask you, Lord, that you would open someone's heart to this. They would very clearly understand that it's not good works that we do. It's not rituals that we do. It's not baptism. It's not taking sacraments. It's not a hundred other things that people try to impress upon us that we must do in order to be Christians. To be a Christian means only to have our faith in you and trust you to do everything that needs to be done for us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone's heart today and help them to understand this. Bring someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then for those who are members of the church and those who are saved and they know that they're saved, Lord, we just pray that they would live every single day of their lives like a change has happened, that they do know you. Bless in our time of singing today. We give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.